15th chapter of uh, 1 Corinthians and the verses 29 and following. I'd like for you to turn to that and we're going to work from this worksheet. One of the most fascinating characters in the Bible is the ancient saint Job from the um, city of Uz. This man of God had, because of some events in his life, asked some questions that he probably would not have asked. And some of us are quick to condemn Job for these questions. Um, What we think of Job is not so much his patience as his impatience. And, and, And some of us are quick to throw stones at him for asking God or questioning God. But really... Before a person would uh, want to condemn Job, he has to kind of identify with him, put himself in his place. If you have lost all your family and your spouse abandons you, and if you lose your job and everything that you've worked to save, and if you've been um, smitten by some disease that is not only uh, deadly, but abhorrent to look at, then you have a right to question the questions of Job. And the last uh, experience in the life of Job, before he comes to some kind of answers, he's sitting on this uh, pile of ashes, and he's scraping these horrible boils that are on his body. And the questions that come out of his life Uh, as he storms the the gates of God, are questions that just emerge from the suffering of this man. And if anyone wants to endure that, then he has the right to question Job. And the most intriguing question, the most familiar one he asks, is found in the 14th chapter of Job. And so before we get to the text, I want you to turn to that, the 14th chapter of Job. And he begins this chapter with a declaration, and the declaration is this. Man who is born of woman is short-lived and full of turmoil. He says later that man is born in trouble as sure as the sparks fly upward. And he talks about the brevity of life and the difficulty of it, and there is just throbbing in this chapter, this This inquiry of Job, is life really worth living? Is it worth all of this? And if you look at verse 7, he looks out a window and he sees this tree there. The tree has died, but from the roots of that tree there is life. It's sprouting up to life. And he makes note of that. That even though there is death in the tree, there is life. That the tree goes on living even though it's died. And verse 13, he asked God to hide him and shield. In other words, oh, if you would just let me die. He concludes that life is really not worth the turmoil and the struggle and the battle. If God would just hide him in the regions of death, just let him die. And then he asked the question in verse 14. If a man dies, will he live again? Now, what he is asking is not, if a man dies, will he live again? The word again is in italics. And it's put there by the translators in order to help us uh, to get some clarity or understanding. But sometimes the translators 
confuse the issue when they try to clarify it. It is not the question, if a man dies, will he live again someday? The question he is asking is this, if a man dies, shall he go on living? Now, it is not a question of the resurrection. Job believes in the resurrection. He says that in verse 12 of this chapter. And in the 19th chapter, he says, I know that my Redeemer lives and at last will stand upon this earth. And when my skin is destroyed, from my flesh I shall see God. He believed in the resurrection and asserted his faith in that from time to time. It is not a question, is there a resurrection? The question is, if a man experiences physical death, shall he go on living? Will there be the continuation of his life? And the question concerns the continuity of one's life. This is what G. Campbell Morgan says about it. In our translation, we have introduced a word again. This is not what Job asked. It is not an inquiry as to whether a dead man should come back to life but whether a man dead, so far as the physical is concerned, still lives. If a man die, if the flower is cut off, is that man still alive? The question has not to do with a possible return to life, but is concerned with the idea of continuity of life beyond what men call death. The question is, when physical death comes, do we keep on living? And the conclusion of the Scripture is yes. Now that's what is dealt with in the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians. What Paul is, ex is expressing, what he's dealing with, is not just the fact of the resurrection from the dead, but is dealing with the fact that man shall, if he is a believer, never experience death. And that there will be a continuity of life that goes on even though physical death has come to him. Now, there are those in the church at Corinth who obviously did not believe in the resurrection. I mean, in the church there were those who did not. Verse 12 of chapter 15 helps us to know that. Um, they believed in the resurrection of Jesus, but they did not necessarily believe in their own resurrection. They had not come to a conclusion or a conviction that life would go on for them. They came from the Greek background, from the Gentile world, and they believed in essence that when a man dies, that's the end of it. And the Apostle Paul comes to establish the fact of the resurrection of Jesus. And what he says in essence is this, that because there is resurrection for Jesus, there is resurrection for you. Because there is life for Jesus that is not destroyed by death, there is life for you that is not destroyed by death who are in Christ. And not only does he establish the fact of the resurrection, but he describes the tragedy that would be if there is no resurrection of Jesus. He says six things will be the result. If there is no resurrection of Jesus, then our preaching is empty. We have nothing to say. Our faith is empty. We have nothing to believe. And if there is no resurrection of Jesus, then we are liars when we witness to the gospel and we're still in our sins. We've never been forgiven of our sins. And those who have died have perished. You will never see them again. And then the final thing he says is that if there is no resurrection, no continuity to life, then of all men we're the most to be pitied. 
And he comes back to this premise that he's established in this first few verses to give us a practical point of view concerning the continuity of life. And he does so by asking three questions and giving three imperatives. Now watch those with me as we come to the text and follow the outline. The first question is found in verse uh, 29. So if there is no resurrection, he says, otherwise, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why then are they baptized for them? Now, it's a, there is just a tremendous amount of controversy that surrounds that verse. As a matter of fact, there are literally 300 interpretations of that one verse of Scripture. But there are three that perhaps are representative of that 300. What does he mean when he talks about being baptized for the dead? He might be saying that there is this heathen practice that is going on of these people who are not believers in Jesus Christ, but they're absolute heathens or pagans, and yet they are being baptized for the dead. And what he's saying in essence perhaps is this. I mean, even the pagan believes in the resurrection. You folks, he's saying, are disciples and followers of Jesus Christ, and you have the one, the one person who was raised from the dead, and you don't believe in the resurrection? Even the pagans believe in the resurrection. There is a second interpretation, and that is this, that there, was, there were some within the church of Corinth who were being baptized in honor of those who had died. For example, there are some who say that in the baptism of the New Testament church, sometime one would stand in the baptistry and point out another who was responsible for his conversion, who had died, and he would say, I'm being baptized to take his place. I have come to accept Jesus Christ as my personal Savior because of his influence and I've come to take his place within the body of Christ and carry on what he's left to do. Are there the third possible interpretation has to do with the symbolism of baptism in which the, 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 the better interpretation would be the, those who are being baptized with reference to the resurrection. Now, why are we baptized? We are, being, we are baptized as believers with reference to His death, burial, and resurrection. Now, the emphasis is not upon the folly of being baptized for the dead. The emphasis is on the folly of not believing in the resurrection. Second question is the question that is raised in verse 30. If there is no resurrection from the dead... Why are we also in danger every hour? And this is, in, 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 in a, letter, a little later on, he says, I die daily. Now, if there is no resurrection of the dead, why do I live in this traumatic lifestyle of the believer? Now, to be a Christian in that day was to be hunted like an animal. It was to live in the con in the, on the on the cutting edge of death. It was to it was to live on the edge of, of persecution and martyrdom. As a matter of fact, some of them 
were lived in secrecy. That's where the sign of the fish came to be, the sign of ichthus. Some would come to another and they would not identify themselves as a Christian for fear of being put to death, but they'd make part of the sign of the ichthus in the sand. And if the other was a believer, he'd understand what he was doing and he'd complete the sign of the fish with the other half of the mark. To live as a Christian in that day was to live on the edge of, of, of persecution and, and imminent death. Now the Apostle Paul is saying, if there is no resurrection from the dead, would I do all of this? Would I live such a lifestyle? Would you do that? He said, well, we could eat, drink, and be merry. The logic, the philosophy of a person who has no hope in a life after death is to live for today, is to eat, drink, and be merry. That's even, that logic is even biblical. And say, and say to do it is biblical. Hold on, it's the logic of it is biblical. As a matter of fact, he quotes from Isaiah. Now, now let me ask you a question. Where you receive the reward, if there were no life beyond this, this life, would you continue to serve God? I mean, the logic the Apostle Paul has is this. There'd be no reason to live to please God if there is no tomorrow. Third question. If there is no resurrection, he says in, in verse 32, what does it profit me? What profit is it for me if there is no resurrection? And he talks about the encounter, the, the, the struggle he had with wild beasts. He's not referring to the arena where he was thrown to wild beasts. He was talking about the adversaries and the opposition that faced him every day. In, in, in other words, if there is no life beyond this, it's not worth it to me to suffer like this. Now, there are three applications from that. The first application is this, that the resurrection strengthens my tie to those who already passed on. Now, somehow the author of the book of Hebrews picks up on this and says, seeing we're encompassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us run with patience the race that's set before us, looking unto Jesus, who is the author and finisher of our faith. And the context of that statement is all of those who have suffered and died for Christ. And he seems to imply or to indicate that there is a vital link between you and me and the ones who have preceded us. We stand today on holy ground. And we have not only an obligation to serve God for Jesus' sake, we have an obligation to serve God for their sake who have preceded us. Um, I thought as this young man played the, uh, the piano here, the first, I think the second funeral I preached when I came to Durant was his grandmother's funeral. I didn't have the privilege of getting to know her very well, but I knew, knew her enough to know that she was a saintly woman. And the example that she left her children is a witness to that. And I thought as he played here tonight that, that how proud she must be if she's conscious, and, and somehow I think she might be, of what he's doing tonight. That there is a vital link between those who have preceded us and those and, and us in our relationship to ministry. The second application is this, that the resurrection is a moral safeguard. 
few years ago, a lady called me and she said, I want to ask you to do something for me. Probably it's a, more, it's a difficult thing I'm going to ask, but I don't know who else to ask. She said, I want you to preach the funeral of my neighbor's son. And, and this boy was a, was a, he was a dope pusher. He was a, uh, a member of the uh, hippie subculture, and he had died a violent death, and, and they were going to bring his body back to this town where I was pastoring, and they wanted me to preach his funeral in the church that I pastored. I said, I'll be happy to help you in the way I can. And when I stood up to preach that boy's funeral, I mean, it, all of his friends were there. I mean, they were the, uh, the, the roughest-looking bunch I'd, I'd ever seen. And, and there was this... Uh, the, the, this, this group that had just kind of come out from under the rocks of the hippie subculture and they were there all sitting together out in there. There was this girl over there that had his shoes on, these guys with these, um, you know, long, filthy, straggly hair and beards. And as I, 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 I tried to preach that boy's funeral, I thought, you know, that's just exact, that's normal. That's the normal lifestyle of people who have no hope in the life beyond. That's the normal lifestyle of those who do not claim the resurrected Christ as Savior. The resurrection is a moral safeguard. Third, belief in the resurrection makes today's trials worth it all. Now, we've sung that song together. We've heard it sung. Um, when we see Jesus... It will be worth it all. It's what the Apostle Paul meant when he said that the trials of this life are not worthy to be compared to the glory that God has prepared for those who love Him. It makes everything in this life worth it all. So that all that a person has to endure and face and experience in this life that's harmful and negative will be worth it all on the other side where God vindicates him glorifies him. Now he gives three imperatives. I want to share these with you quickly, then I'm through. The first imperative is this. Do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. It's a reference to satanic deception. And, and he quotes not a, not, a, not a passage of Scripture from the Old Testament. He, he actually is quoting from a Greek poet, this statement or this cliché that was prominent in that day, bad company corrupts good morals. Now, now, when you tie those two statements together, he's saying this, young people, don't listen to the crowd, don't listen to the mob. If you continue to associate with those who are evil, you're on Christian ways are going to be destroyed. Don't be deceived by, by a satanic deception. Don't listen to the, to the crowd. Don't be deceived. Don't think that you're going to hold out your Christian virtues and Christian convictions by running with the evil crowd and getting them to, to come over to your side. You'll go to their side. Don't continue to associate with the wrong folks. And don't continue to do that which is not substantiated by the Word of God. Don't be deceived. The second 
is the imperative. Be sober-minded. It means to wake up and look at what's happening to you. It means to think with discernment. I've never ceased to be amazed at how God puts things together. The very song you sang tonight, young people, is exactly what Paul is saying here. Is that when you encounter temptation, think with discernment. Wake up and, 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 and think as to what this kind of direction or lifestyle will ultimately result in. And the third imperative is to stop sinning. It, it, it means to find those areas in your life where you're missing the mark and have a turn-around experience and fashion your life after the Word of God. For the reality is that you're living for tomorrow today. You're living for tomorrow today. That there is going to be a life beyond this life. There's going to be continuity. And Jesus said it like this, Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Live for tomorrow right now. Now what we think of when we're young, I think, is that tomorrow is a light year away. Every date you have, young folks, young people, with every person you go out with, you need to make those choices of dating on the basis of tomorrow, what, it will, what will ultimately be the result of this date. The career choices you make, the decisions you make, should be on the basis not of what this means to me now only, but on the basis of what tomorrow is going to be. And Paul is saying, on the basis of the fact that this is not the end of life, you need to find those areas in your life where you're missing the mark and have a turnaround experience. Let's pray together. Father, speak to our hearts in these moments of invitation as you have spoken to us in days past because I pray in Jesus' name for his sake. There are three invitations that, we concern, that we're concerned about tonight, three decisions. One decision has to do with one's personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Have you, have you made a faith commitment to Jesus? Has there been a time when you've turned in faith to Him and trusted Him for eternal salvation? Second invitation has to do with church membership, when we invite you to come and place your life in the church. Living tomorrow today. The third invitation has to do with, with our lifestyle and where we are in relation to our, our commitment to Christ. And what if we suddenly stood before God? Would He be pleased with the todays that we've lived? And is there necessary tonight public rededication of life? If there is, would you do it? These are the invitations that we extend to you as we stand to sing. You come if God leads you.